I had a period ceremony when I was what 12 13 when I started my periods and it is like just the strangest experience I mean I grew up with quite a lot of Sri Lankan Tamil friends who were also second gen so we kind of had a shared experience of this so it didn't feel too alien but on paper it is pretty alien you hire out like a secondary school assembly hall right with stage and everything so there I went to Highgate Wood on a Saturday afternoon, wrapped up in a sari because it's the first time you wear like a full sari because now you're a woman, you know, uh, if you didn't get that from the blood that was gushing out of your vagina. So now you definitely know because you're wearing a sari and you're covered in gold. Relatives coming up to you and being like, congratulations, and you just don't know what to say. I have a whole DVD. I have a DVD of this, which is great. And my uncle's actually in the videography business. So, you know, he kind of did this creative edit where he's sort of chasing me through the park and there's like, you know, the shawl like flying in the wind. And, you know, when I got my period, I was just handed a pack of pads and off I went. There was no, you've got some options or there was none of that. It was just here you are and off you go. So that says a lot about the conversations that we had about periods and anatomy and general menstrual health and hygiene. Yeah. Talking to my daughter before this, I said, oh, this is what we're talking about today. And she's currently on her period. And I said, oh, but don't worry, I won't mention that. And she's like, why not? It's nothing to be ashamed of. She was absolutely right. I am absolutely obsessed with the younger generations. Like they are just so dope, aren't they? Like they are so much cooler about everything. They're just so much more ballsy. I'm so jealous that I grew up in the 90s where everything was just crap. <laughs> well, it wasn't so bad. I mean, the video cameras weren't as good now. I mean, just think now, you know, <laughs> ultra HD 4K. I mean, this is, you know, you would have been, it would have been amazing. It would have potentially ended up on TikTok. Your uncle <laughs> oh my god that's true new fear unlocked new fear unlocked <laughs> hello i'm nihal arthanaika and this is a brief history of stuff you're going to hear fascinating stories about the ordinary objects around you in this podcast, all inspired by historic items from the Science Museum Group Collection. Hi, Suba. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Excited to be here recording with you guys and talk about periods. So I'm Suba, I'm a doctor who specialises in obstetrics and gynaecology and I'm also a podcaster so I created and host the podcast In Hysterics which is just a space where we have educational frank conversations about women's health topics and we talk about the social, cultural, political and sometimes even historical underpinnings of those health issues. Suba, stay with us because now I want to introduce Rebecca Raven, who's assistant curator at the Science Museum, and talk to her about the history of menstruation products. Hi, Rebecca. 
Hi guys, so lovely to be here. I'm Rebecca Raven, an assistant curator working at the Science Museum. The curators you've chatted to before on the podcast have had very specific areas of the collection they care for, but I'm a bit of a jack of all trades and help look after roughly 200,000 objects from across the collection. One day I can be looking at an iron lung used in the treatment of polio in the medicine collections, and the next I can be looking at a chunk of a car engine. Saying this, I have a particular interest in periods, especially looking at what people have used to deal with them in the past and considering how we will experience them in the future. So as far as we know, Rebecca, where does the story of menstruation products begin? So although periods are part of life, there are a few records of menstruation from the past. So it's difficult to know for certain how people dealt with their periods. Period products certainly didn't come into mass kind of circulation for only the past 100, 150 years or so. Most early sources about periods were written by men and the majority didn't deem menstruation worthy enough to document. One example is in the Aztec Empire. The people that wrote the histories of the Mexica people after the conquest were Spanish Catholic missionaries who had little interest in periods. For a civilization so centered around human sacrifice and the spilling of blood, it seems an incredible omission to not have recorded anything about how people dealt with their own blood every month. And it's been ever thus, hasn't it, Suba? We still have a taboo around this subject, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And to such an extreme level that, you know, people don't often even know what's normal for a period, how much blood are you supposed to have, you know, how much are you supposed to lose, how much pain is acceptable. So, you know, on the flip side of that coin, you have women and girls that go through immense amounts of suffering, like undue suffering, um, because we don't talk about it. I remember when I started my period, it was discussed in my household and everybody was really nice about it. I wouldn't have said there was particularly a celebration. So it's excellent to hear about Sri Lankan culture and how you celebrate becoming woman. I'm a bit jealous of getting to go up on the stage and getting the star treatment, personal videographer. I think hopefully by talking about periods more in podcasts like this one and in books, on TV, adverts, products themselves, I think that the taboo of trying to hide periods is hopefully going to become less and less and that everybody can admit to, yes, I'm having a period right now. And there's no shame in that. So Hypatia, the first female mathematician, is said to have thrown a used menstrual cloth at a man in an effort to get him to go away in the 4th century. Highly approved, seems very effective. This tells us that Hypatia could stand up for herself, but also that people in the Roman period most likely used these pieces of cloth to soak up menstrual blood. Um, So both women and men wore the subligaculum in ancient Rome, which was essentially a loincloth. It's also likely they might have just bled onto their clothes. Dark coloured clothes would hide this really well. And the use of cloths and this free bleeding were universal ways to deal with menstruation around the world. And these remained the main methods of period care for thousands of years. What about more recently, though, Rebecca? So if we're talking about more contemporary products like tampons and pads, it was only the Victorian era that menstrual products started to become more available to the public. 
By the end of the 19th century, we start to see the introduction of the sanitary belt. The belts were essentially a waistband of elastic that would sit on a person's waist with two clips attached, one at the front, one at the back, and a washable, mostly, towel would be attached via the clips to soak up the menstrual blood. A key figure for the sanitary belt is American inventor Mary Kenner. She designed a belt in the 1920s at a time when most people tended to make their own menstrual products at home out of cloths and rags and only really used commercial products like Kotex pads when they had to leave the house to go to school or college. These Kotex pads were described as too large, too long, too thick and too stiff. So not much use at all. She came up with the idea of a belt to hold a menstrual towel in the 1920s But it wasn't until 1956 when she was able to raise enough money for the expensive patent process. The belt included easily adjustable straps that allowed the user to wear the belt in the most comfortable position for them, which also adapted to all body types and helped to eliminate chafing and irritation. Kenna was continually updating her inventions and she later filed another one for another sanitary belt with a moisture-proof pocket, making it even more unlikely for blood to leak onto clothing. Numerous companies heard about Kenna's patent and contacted her with the intention of making and selling her menstrual belt. The companies declined to work with her when they discovered she was black. Racism prevented Kenna from profiting from her invention. Her patent expired, allowing manufacturers to later profit off her idea, but this didn't stop her. Kenna filed a total of five patents, more than any other African-American woman in history, but she never became rich from her inventions or received any awards. These belts were the main option up until the 1970s, yet they're largely forgotten today. Suba, had you ever heard the story of Mary Kenner before? I have to say, to my eternal shame, I had never heard of Mary Kenner. No, I don't think I had either. And this is an amazing story. So disappointing when you were telling me about how you know racism cut into that whole situation. She describes being picked up in a limo from her house and kind of driven to the offices and picturing really big things for herself and her family and then getting turned away almost immediately on arrival. Immediately on arrival? I think so. I didn't think she got even much of a chance to show off her invention. I almost feel an anger welling up in me as you you tell me about that. I mean, this is when? The 1950s in America, was it? Yeah, 1950s America. Do any exist anymore? Any of her original patents? Not sure if any of her original ones do, but we have a Dr. White's sanitary belt in the collection. That's interesting. That's it. Which would have been modelled on Mary Kenner's belt, do we think? I believe so, yeah. Mm. Should we say modelled? Am I using a euphemism for perhaps stolen, <laughs> the idea? <laughs> Most likely. After that patent expired, anybody could profit off her ideas. She was an incredible woman. Her other three patents were helping her sister who had mobility issues and they were all for use in the bathroom and they involved a kind of a back scrub in the shower that you could stick on the wall and a really handy walking cane that included a tray for people to put food on and stuff so they didn't have to juggle while using a cane. Extraordinary woman. Let's move on from belts to tampons. And what about them? Are they the most recent invention? 
they have a longer history than you might expect. They were invented in the late 1920s and early 30s with one suggested origin for the idea of using cotton and cellucotton in this way is that nurses in the First World War realized that wadding using soldiers' wounds would also be good for soaking up their own menstrual blood. For a long time, tampons were viewed as immoral as it involved inserting something into the vagina. There was the idea that young girls using tampons could somehow lose their virginity by inserting a tampon. But the concept of virginity is really a social construct and cannot be lost by using a tampon or other menstrual products that you insert into the vagina, like a moon cup. But in terms of more modern tampons, we've recently added some Boots Liberelle compact tampons to the collection describing tampons as small and discreet and perfect for your handbag focuses on this desire again to hide menstruation from others that we spoke about earlier. You can find with a lot of products that are coming out onto the market like pads which have been designed to crinkle less when you unfurl them in a toilet stall and soft closed lids on waste bins. And yeah, I was definitely one of those people at school that would shove a tampon up her sleeve when I had to go to the toilet during class. And these more disposable products today still have an emphasis on being quiet, discreet and hiding your period from people around you. You would be surprised at how, if you're about to do an intimate examination, how many women will think, oh, but I'm on my period, so you can't, or, oh, that's really gross because I'm on my period. And it literally makes no difference to a doctor. I mean, it's sort of the field that we've chosen to go into. And it's absolutely nothing to be embarrassed about. But the number of people that, you know, will feel uncomfortable or awkward about it, because you've been told that it's something that it's shameful, you've been told that it's something that is embarrassing, that it's bad, or, you know, that it's not something that other people should know about, even if you're comfortable with it. But I do think um, just harking back to the fact that pads and tampons are often designed to be discreet and to be, you know, hygienic. I hate that word as well. The idea of menstrual products as being about feminine hygiene or sanitary products. There's nothing unsanitary or unhygienic about a period. They're just menstrual products. But products like menstrual cups or even menstrual sort of underwear are, I think, really fascinating because they force you to have a much closer relationship with your menstrual blood. So if you have a menstrual cup, you have to empty your menstrual cup every X number of hours. And during that time period, you have to insert your fingers in your vagina, grip the cup, pull the cup out. You visually see the blood that you've passed and you empty it, you clean it and you reinsert it. And actually, in a lot of ways, that's very different to a pad or a tampon. And likewise, with your period underwear, it's something that you then have to wash and clean. And it's a moment of more acknowledging what has happened, that you have had a period that you've bled this much blood. And, you know, it doesn't shy away from the reality of what what it is, which I think kind of removes that taboo in some way. But I think the commonest taboo is is the shame. There's There's this shame that surrounds periods. It's really pervasive. Rebecca, what is the environmental impact of using millions of these disposable products every day around the world? It's not a good one. It's not a good one. Each year in the UK, more than 4 billion menstrual products are used. 
Each person who menstruates will use up to 16,000 tampons and pads in their lifetime if they opt for disposable products. So that's creating around 200 kilograms of waste in total per kind of life. And for comparison, that's the weight of a bottlenose dolphin for each person that menstruates if they use disposable products. How much of the waste is plastic, Rebecca? Up to roughly 90% of the conventional disposable menstrual product. So, for example, those used in tampon applicators, that's the most abundant type of plastic found particularly in the oceans. So, once, so these plastics are either binned or flushed down the toilet. They shouldn't be flushed down the toilet if we can help it. It's better for the environment to put them in the bin. We don't say that about many things, but nearly half the menstrual items used in the UK are flushed away. In the eastern region of the UK alone, around 800 tonnes of wipes, tampons, other flushable bathroom items are flushed into the sewers every week. And it can cost tens of millions of pounds a year to unblock these sewers. And it's not just the sewers they're damaging, they're also found on our beaches. A recent survey found around five pieces of menstrual waste per 100 metres of beach cleaned. Amongst certain consumer groups, there's a big push for increasing sustainability. But I do still think that there are these really strong cultural beliefs around periods. And for some people, the thought of having to deal with, say, a menstrual cup or using reusable underwear, this idea of a lack of hygiene or not wanting to or not feeling comfortable to be faced with exactly what's happening means that I think there still is a market for disposable products and there's a time and place where I think people prefer them. I think that it goes both ways. There are a few alternatives such as organic cotton, so keeping the disposable nature of a tampon or a pad but using more ethical organic cotton. But again, we can use these washable period pants, cups, etc. We collected some of these examples to add to our collection, highlighting the wide range of sustainable menstruation products now available. We're also seeing reusable cups such as the Moon Cup, which is a really popular one, and washable fabric pads that people can download patterns for online and make out of their own cloth at home. And they just kind of fasten rather than a sticky underside adhesive layer, just with a little button underneath the pants. And again, like you said, Suba, while people who menstruate may not want to use a cup regularly, one small action many people could take would be to switch to using certified organic disposable products just for some periods, some part of the period, just one or two days if they felt comfortable. While sustainable products are likely to be the future of menstruation, it is worth noting that they tend to have a bigger upfront cost as well though they tend to be cheaper over the long run. And it's difficult to have a sustainable period if you struggle to afford the products in the first place. Absolutely. And I mean, period poverty, when we speak about in the UK alone, is an issue. But when we take even a global look at period care and and period solutions, you know, that gap widens even further. If we're talking about using, for instance, a menstrual cup, you need to have good access to be able to regularly wash and clean and sanitize that cup to reduce the risk of infections. Likewise with your reusable pads and underwear. And yeah, that's just something to bear in mind when we talk about sustainability is 
how do we bridge that gap and just bear in mind that the issue extends way beyond our borders as well. Is the current thinking, Suba, that bridging the gap is with the use of the cheapest, most available products that are currently out there, regardless of how they impact upon the environment? Or is there a drive to try and link the two things together? So to look at period poverty and sustainability and bring them together? Yeah, um, there is an amazing uh, menstrual cup business where they also provide cups to anyone who needs them, irrespective of whether they can or can't pay for it. And if you can pay for it, then you do. That kind of business strategy, you know, means that they're able to provide free menstrual cups to people, which is, you know, obviously sustainable. You then don't need any other period product for X number of years until you need to replace your cup. Then you're bridging a gap of people feeling comfortable to use that and to do that. And then on the flip side, at the end of the day, if, if people are experiencing period poverty, what's important is that they have period products, whatever it is that they're comfortable to use. So at the moment, from charities and organizations that are providing period products, they provide a range of products for whatever people are comfortable using. And so I think that it's not just providing sustainable products. There's a culture shift that needs to come. Those things all need to happen hand in hand. Here's a big question for you, Rebecca. What does the future hold for menstruation products? So I think the future holds a lot of exciting things. Hopefully an increase in the number of these reusable options that are available. Hopefully on a cheaper price point so more people can have access to them. Hopefully more education so people know what these products do know how to use them, know how they might benefit them. And hopefully that can break down the taboo that we're talking about of people feeling more comfortable using products that they might not have wanted to use before. I'm also hoping that there's going to be more research into periods and issues like endometriosis, which is desperately needed. But people have struggled with menstrual taboos for years and years talking more about periods with friends in the media through podcasts. So I'm hoping more period chat is going to happen in the future. And just to emphasize that having a period is an incredibly normal process. Every single day, there's 800 million people around the world having their period. And it's just a bodily function at the end of the day. Shouldn't be an embarrassing thing to talk about. There's definitely a consciousness, isn't there? Um, companies are very aware of that. They've definitely shifted away from the hygiene talk. When I was growing up, you'd see period products being shown with a woman in a white pair of leggings and a white tank top, like doing gymnastics. And, and you know, the sign of absorbency was always this Riding mysterious, a elusive. Riding was, I think, another one. Always, always. And I mean, but there'd also be the blue liquid, the like iconic blue liquid that was meant to represent blood somehow i don't know where the where the jump comes you know from blue to red but i think there's a lot more visibility around that too i think there are some companies that do just show blood and or not actual blood but red colored liquid at least and that's a good thing i do also think that even with regards to being more conscious of the fact that there are many people who menstruate who do not identify as women so that's something important to bear in mind as well the thing that I would love for more people to know about, not only people that menstruate, but everybody, is just period pain, what's normal, what isn't normal. 
the fact that endometriosis takes seven to eight years on average to diagnose is atrocious. And there's multiple levels to that that all need to be addressed. But if we start from people, there being more visibility about the topic. I'm absolutely addicted to TikTok. And I saw a TikTok video recently um, that was so powerful of a girl showing a time lapse of her on her bathroom floor experiencing endometriosis pain. And it is harrowing to see someone in that condition and in that position and to think that they're going to a healthcare professional and maybe their concerns aren't being addressed or that they're talking to their employer and that they're still being asked to come into work or they're talking to their family members and they're being told that a degree of pain with periods is expected or stuff like that. It's not normal. If I had a magic wand, that would be the thing I would wave and and change. You can actually connect to so many other people on a similar level because you experience this together, even though we're told not to talk about it and we're told that it's shameful. But actually, when you, you know, disentangle that notion from your experience of your period, actually, it's an incredibly unifying experience because so many of us menstruate. And I, when I was 12 and hadn't started my period yet, all of my friends had. And I remember feeling like I was just left out of this secret gang and I just wanted in. I wanted my period so badly. So it's interesting how a change in perspective can change the way you view it. I think the abundance of companies that have come about as well have meant that there are more developments into accessibility as well so one pair of period pants that we collected has a clasp on one side which makes it easier for people with mobility issues to take on and off because the actual act of pulling on a pair of pants can be quite physically taxing so this little clasp on the hip means that you can just kind of wiggle out of them a lot easier and I think this influx of new brands is meaning that people are coming up with solutions like this that they didn't have with just the classic tampon and the predictable pad. And I'd like to jump on and add, actually, that this sort of ties into the story of Mary Kenner, because what's amazing about so many of these companies is that we've got women at the helm of them. So they're driving forward the creation of products that they have an intimate understanding about, which historically wasn't the case. And something that you know, amazing women like Mary Kenner were not given the opportunity to do. That's amazing. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. You've certainly given me lots to think about. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And Suba, thank you to you as well. What will you take away from this experience? It's been so interesting. Um, definitely going to read up more on Mary Kenner. She sounds like an absolute icon and keep encouraging everyone to talk about periods and brandish my period products everywhere I go. So if you see some nutcase running around, you know, shaking around my menstrual cup, it'll be clean, I promise. That'll be me. Amazing. Thank you again. Now, A Brief History of Stuff is a Story, Things and Science Museum group production. Each episode features a story inspired by incredible items from the Science Museum group collection. The collection contains more than 
Deep Breath, seven million items which illustrate the impact of science, technology, engineering and medicine on all our lives. If you'd like to discover more stories about the everyday objects around you, including more about the history behind your period products, then visit sciencemuseum.org.uk and search for everyday technology. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Suba Theogalingam, host of the In Hysterics podcast, and to assistant curator Rebecca Raven from the Science Museum for taking part in this episode. The series producer is Will Stanley, and executive producer is Hugh Gary. The script editor is Ian Stedman, audio editor is Kenya Scarlett, and research for this episode was by Rebecca Raven. We would like to thank everyone at the Science Museum Group who made this podcast possible. And if you'd like to support this podcast and our museums, then please do check out the Science Museum's online shop. You can claim an exclusive 10% discount on science-inspired gifts using the code SMGCAST10. SMGCAST10. There you go. If you like a brief history of stuff, We'd be over the moon if you would tell your friends and rate us wherever you listen to your podcast to help others discover these fascinating stories. Thank you for listening. I hope we've inspired you to wonder a little bit more about the remarkable stuff around you.